Briefly, up to this point, we have been able to establish the storyline, those books in the Old Testament that contain this ongoing narrative that brings us into who God is and how he's working in this world. We've looked at the book of Genesis and a little bit at the contents and established this foundation for understanding life. It brings us into understanding our existence in this world. We've looked at the book of Exodus, knowing that he is the Lord. That's God's primary concern, and it needs to be our primary concern as well. And then in our last session, we looked at the importance of covenant and sacrifice in maintaining this relationship with the Lord. God's forbearing love, doing everything he can so that we can continue to enjoy fellowship with him. For this session, we want to turn in our Bibles to the book of Numbers, And we're going to connect numbers to the book of Exodus. And basically what we're going to see is we're going to build on the book of Exodus, knowing that he's the Lord. And we're going to see the challenge to the people of Israel in living out what it means to know that he's the Lord. And then we're going to move our way into the book of of Deuteronomy and see the end of Moses' life and the sermons that he brings and what is the key theological point of that book as well. So Numbers, the challenge to live out what it means to know that he's the Lord. When we think about content in this book, at the end of Exodus, we've got the glory of the Lord coming down on the tabernacle. So they have been brought out of Egypt. They're in a covenant relationship with the Lord. They've got the Mosaic covenant and the tabernacle's been built. God's dwelling there. Moses can't enter the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus has defined how they are to maintain fellowship with God and with one another. It's this priestly manual that instructs them on how they are to conduct themselves with God's presence among them. And now Numbers is gonna pick that up. They're still at Mount Sinai. Look at chapter one, verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. So we do know when the book of Numbers is being written, more than likely the tabernacle has already been built, the tent of meeting. We saw that same term used in Exodus chapter 40, the tent of meeting. Now, the reason I say probably built is because we do have this other tent of meeting that Moses used to pitch outside the camp and he would meet with the Lord. But now we've got this tabernacle known as this tent of meeting. So more than likely it's been built and look at the time frame. It says that he is, the Lord is speaking to Moses on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So they've been out of Egypt for a while. A lot's taken place. The law's been given. Even in the book of Exodus, it talks about Moses going up to the mount and he would spend 40 days up there. Well, that's a month and a half there. And so a lot of time is going by throughout this particular time. And now, We are ready to turn our attention toward going to the promised land and taking that land. So what they do is we have the movement in the book of Numbers from Sinai to the promised land. And there's going to be an ordering of the people. Immediately they take a census. We're going to see two censuses in this book, and hence the name Numbers, chapter 1 and chapter 26. The first one is the first generation that comes out of Egypt, but because of their rebellion, they die in the wilderness, and a second generation is raised up, and so there's another census taken. 
And the purpose of the census is to prepare them for taking the land. Who's going to do what? How are they going to approach war? Who's got what responsibility in moving through the wilderness? And so there's a lot of logistics that need to be worked out. But mostly it's going to be about this movement through the, plain, through the wilderness to the plains of Moab and in the middle is going to be this 40 years of wilderness wandering because of their disobedience. The book of Deuteronomy is going to take place on the plains of Moab, Moses' final sermons, and then Joshua is going to pick up the story and then talk about the conquest into the land. So throughout this story in the book of Numbers, we're going to learn about the initial days of this relationship with the Lord. In Exodus the strong point was, know that I'm the Lord. And now in Exodus and number, we're, Numbers, we're gonna see again, this knowledge is not intellectual. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a day-by-day -day knowledge, a moment-by-moment -moment knowledge. It's something that we know in the midst of the context of life. To know that he is the Lord will have an effect on how we live our lives, or in this case, how Israel is to live her life. Now, there's a couple of chapters that just give us a little picture of what takes place during this time. Look at Numbers chapter 9. I always find Numbers chapter 9 a little bit humorous. At the end of Exodus, we find the glory of the Lord coming down on the tabernacle in this cloud. It's so thick, so dense that Moses cannot even enter into the tabernacle. But this presence of God is going to go before them. And Exodus 40 was laying that out for us. When the cloud moved, the nation would move. If the cloud didn't move, the nation wouldn't move. But listen to how clear the instructions are about this. Numbers chapter nine, verse 15. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, that's Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously, the cloud would cover it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. So this is that continuous presence of the Lord. You could be anywhere in the camp, look toward the center of the camp where the tabernacle was located, and you would have a visual reminder that the Lord is dwelling in your midst. Now, verse 17, whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward, the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. 
And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. That's exhausting to read through that. Are there any questions about what to do when the cloud moves or when it remains? I mean, God is very clear that this is not about Israel. No one's in charge. Moses is not in charge. The nation of Israel is not gonna make any decisions about what they're gonna do. It's all about looking at the presence of God and waiting for him to move. Life is not about Israel. It's about God. He's accomplishing his purposes. He'll accomplish them in his time according to his particular perspective of life. And Israel is to what? Humble themselves, obey him, and worship him along the way. That's what it means to know that he is the Lord. And so this is gonna be the movement. And when you go to chapter 33, you see every city that they camped in along the way. Uh, from the very beginning to the end, there's a clear record. They moved here and camped. They moved here and camped. They moved here and camped. We don't know where all those places are in that particular part of the world these days, but we have a very clear record of where they camped. Now, so throughout the book of Numbers, we've got this story of them moving on their way to the promised land. And every intent, when you're reading through the story, you understand this generation is gonna take the land. I mean, you can feel that. You know it. You know it's gonna happen. So in chapter 11, they actually get on the verge of taking the land. And so they send um, spies in to the land or chapter 13, they, they send spies into the land to check out the land and they do see, wow, this is a place of blessing and they recognize it's amazing where God is bringing us right now. It's very Garden of Eden-esque. I mean, you can just feel the blessings of the Garden of Eden once again as they bring back the fruit and they begin to watch what's taking place. But then in chapter 13, in verse 33, there's a problem. It says there, there also we saw the Nephilim, sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in theirs. And so what do the spies say? Ten spies say, no, let's don't take the land. We can't do it. Giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. And two spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, yes, let's take the land. It's been given to us by God. This is about him. It's not about us. See, what's going on with those 10 spies is rather than having their eyes fixed on knowing that he's the Lord and believing him and trusting him, they're now looking at their own circumstances. They're looking at the situation from their perspective, and it doesn't make any sense to move forward. They don't want that. They, they consider that death, and they want relief, and so they're going to protect themselves, and they rebel. Is God good? Can they follow God's command? Is he trustworthy? Joshua and Caleb say, yes. This is exactly what we should do. And this has been the culmination of a series of events. And so God responds at this point and he is angry with his people. He's angry with them. And he says, Moses, separate yourself. I'm gonna destroy these people. And Moses, who's learned to love these people and has become a shepherd of these people, before he would have said, why did you make me the leader of these people? Now he bows on his face before the Lord and says, pardon them. And he is a priest for them on their behalf before the Lord. And that brings us to verse 11 in chapter 14. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Now notice what God is saying. God is saying, can we go back to Egypt? 
I did all of these signs and all of these wonders so Egypt would know that I'm the Lord, so Israel would know that I'm the Lord and they could tell their son and their grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians. In fact, I want the whole world to know that I'm the Lord. There's no one beside me. There's no one like me. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else is what he says in Isaiah the prophet. So the Lord says, how long? How much do they have to see? How much do I have to show them? Now, the Lord is obviously at a place in his life of great struggle. And so he, he continues to, to look at um, Moses and he is the kind of person who is, as verse eight, 18 says, the Lord is slow to anger, abundant loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Very much Moses comes to him and pleads to him on the behalf of his goodness and his mercy. And God does respond. He answers Moses' prayer. But notice what the Lord goes on and says in verse 20. So the Lord said, I pardon them according to your word, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt, in the wilderness, they've seen this all along the way, yet they've put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means enter the land which I swore to their fathers, nor any of those who spurned me see it. So there's gonna be consequences. They're gonna be able to live. We aren't gonna have a total destruction of the people. They're gonna be able to live, but they will not go into the promised land. But there's a very important principle for us to understand here. All along the way, God has been doing these signs. Why? So that the people will know that he's the Lord. And what do we mean by that? These signs were to produce belief. That's what the Lord is saying. I have shown up in all my glory, in all my majesty, so that they could know who I am, so that they would believe. You see, this delay in God's forward progress, why is God taking so long? Not only is he in no hurry to accomplish his purposes, we see also God is doing this for the good of Israel. He wants them to see him act so that it produces belief in them so that when they encounter another trial, then encountering this trial, they're gonna have that belief. It's gonna sustain them. And the Lord says, how many times do I have to show up? How many times do I have to do an act? How many times do I have to show a sign? How many times do I have to show a wonder before they believe? And signs and wonders did produce belief. Back in Exodus chapter four, remember when Moses showed up, the Lord gave him three signs that he could perform in their midst and that was to produce belief and it does. In verse 30 of chapter four of Exodus, and Aaron spoke all these words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now notice, he then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that they had seen, he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low in worship. Signs producing belief, producing worship. You see, God shows up to get their attention so that they know who he is and they worship him in all of his glory. That's God's intent. We see also in Exodus chapter 14, when God brings them to the, the Red Sea and They've got mountains on one side, wilderness on the other, the Red Sea in front of them, and now Pharaoh's army is coming behind them. 
and they've got a problem. So Pharaoh's coming, all of their servants are coming. And so we see as we move into chapter 14 in verses 30 and 31, the Lord parts the waters and we've got a wall on the left and a wall on the right. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And notice this, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, this sign, this miracle, this wonder, the people feared the Lord and they believed. And then chapter 15 is a, is a chapter of worship and they celebrate the goodness of the Lord. Who is like him? He's a rock. There's none beside him. There is no other. It's the Lord. And they celebrate and worship him in all of his glory. Israel has seen this time and time again. And so that's why the Lord in Numbers 14 says, listen, all the earth is going to be filled with my glory. You think it's something when my glory comes down on the tabernacle? You wait till you see my glory over all the earth. That's what God's intent is for all nations to bow down and see him in his glory and to live in light of his glory. And he says, surely all the men who have seen my glory, my signs, which I did at Egypt and all through the wilderness and yet have put me to the test. You see, signs were to produce belief. Signs were to bring about a trust and a conviction that he's the Lord. And the Lord has been doing everything he can. Not just one sign. He gave Moses three. But there was plague after plague after plague. And if that was not enough, he trapped them at the Red Sea so he could part the waters and show up one more time. Repeatedly, God has been saying, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. Watch this. You think that was something? Wait till you see this. Hey, you thought that was something else? Wait till you see this. And yet Israel does not have the belief that God intends. Deuteronomy chapter five captures this for us. It really summarizes the point that God feels here in Numbers 14. It says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they feared me, that they knew who I was. And they lived in light of that. See, it's not intellectual. Yeah, I know who God is. No, it's experiential. I know who he is and it impacts the way that I live my life. That's not happening for Israel. So the Lord says, they've put me to the test these 10 times. Now, the question throughout scholarship has been, is this a reference to a literal 10 times? In other words, God says, hey, listen, this is the 10th time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. That's it, I've had it. Or is it close to, I have a 14-year-old son and it comes time to do his chores on Saturday and I say to him, Drew, go clean your room. And he gets distracted and I say, Drew, I said, go clean your room. And then he's distracted. And I say, Drew, please go clean your room. And then he gets distracted. And I say, Drew, I've told you a hundred times. Now go clean your room. Now, have I really told him a hundred times? No, but I've told him over and over and over again. So is this a hyperbole where the Lord is saying, I've told you repeatedly, I've told you over and over time and time again. Or is this a literal 10 times? It's interesting the rabbis deba debated that um, throughout time, the history of Jewish interpretation, and they have come up with 10 times. 
And whether or not God is referring to these exact 10 times or, or not is really beside the point because these 10 times that they refer to bring us into the problem. And that's what we want to see, the challenge of living in light of the fact that he is the Lord. Israel struggles with this time and time again. Well, what does it look like? What do we mean by this challenge? Well, if we go from Exodus 14 all the way up to this passage in Numbers 14, we do find 10 times. And I want us to look through those and understand what is going on in the nation of Israel and why they have the struggle that they do. The first one, is found in Exodus 14 in verses 10 through 12. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became frightened. So remember, we got mountains, wilderness, Red Sea. Now Egyptians are coming behind them and they're afraid. Then they cried out to the Lord and then Moses said, is it because, and then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way? You see, they're looking at a very difficult time and and they're saying to Moses, hey, was it just because we couldn't die back in Egypt that you brought us out here? Because now we're gonna die. A lot of good it was to follow you and this Lord who you say is leading the way. I don't know what to think about him either. You see, that's what it means to put the Lord to the test. This is the same nation that has already witnessed the 10 plagues. The 10 plagues where Israel was set apart in the land of Goshen and they would see destruction being poured out on the nation of Egypt And then they were set apart. Why? Because there's no one like the Lord. He's all powerful. He's in control. And that was a sign to produce belief. Instead, we have this rebellion. And they cry out, why are you dealing with us this way? Verse 12, is this not what we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I don't know if their memory is short, But as I recall what was taking place back in Egypt, that was hard labor. It was bitter labor, rigorously imposed on them. And have we forgotten male babies being thrown into the Nile? Pregnant moms not knowing what was gonna happen with their children. That was better. The Lord is inviting them to life. He's inviting them to relationship. He's bringing them out of that into a land that's gonna be their own. But they're gonna have to trust him. He's shown up. He's given them signs, but they need to believe him and follow him. Now, what we see happen next is nothing short of amazing mercy, amazing grace. Rather than consume them, God provides another sign. Isn't that amazing? Another sign. So God has already showed them all these plagues And these wonders were to produce belief and they disbelieve. Instead of rejecting them, God shows them another sign and he parts the waters of the Red Sea and they walk through on dry ground. That would have been incredible. Can you imagine waters being parted, walking through on dry ground? How long do you think it would take you to forget that experience? How long do you think it would be before you were no longer overwhelmed with God's greatness and his power and his glory? How long do you think it would take you before your belief would begin to shatter just a little bit? Maybe your faith would begin to waver. 
Well, we can look at the text. After all this celebration in chapter 15, we get down to verse 22. Now notice, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness and they went three days. Okay, parting of the waters of the Red Sea, walked through on dry ground. They saw the dead Egyptians on the seashore three days into the wilderness and they have no water. Do you think that their faith could sustain them? you think that their belief in these signs and wonders could be sustained? you think that God's done enough to show them that he can be trusted? What more do they need to see? Well, what's their response? They found no water. Verse 23, they came to Marah. They could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. And so they can't find any water and they finally do. And guess what? It's bitter. They can't drink it. So three days, nothing. They're starting to get thirst and there's water and they can't have any. What, what is God doing? Could God cause water just to fall from the heavens? Well, absolutely. Could he all of a sudden have water all over the place? Absolutely. And then there's water and it's bitter. How do the people respond? Verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? What shall we drink? And they begin grumbling and complaining. Once again, they're putting the Lord to the test. Do they believe who he is? Have they seen the signs and the wonders? Can they turn to God and say, God, we'd rather have you in the wilderness and die of thirst than be back in Egypt because we've got you. And you alone is who we need for life. You alone are the one that we need. No, they grumble and they complain. Now, again, God does not turn to them in wrath and destroy them. God gives them another sign. It's absolutely incredible what's taking place in the story here. Verse 25, Moses then cries out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. He threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet, became another sign when you encounter bitter water, that's not a problem for the Lord. Just turn to him. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't put him to the test. Just turn to him. So now we've seen the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. We've seen bitter waters made sweet. You think that's going to be enough for the nation of Israel? How ah, about chapter 16? Verse 1, Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Shin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. 15th day, second month. We've been a, a month, just a little over a month leaving Sinai. And the whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so we've got hunger. We've got complaining. We've got grumbling. Oh, we could just go back to Egypt. Who wants God in the first place? Just give us Egypt. Again, I don't know what they're talking about because the way I remember Egypt, they don't want anything to do with it. They've got the Lord, but they grumble and they complain. And so what does the Lord do? He brings down bread from heaven and there's quail on the ground. So they've got bread and manna and they've got meat and the quail. God provides for them miraculously and they are able to enjoy the bread and the meat. In verse 13, it says, So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when it evaporated, there was this manna that was there. 
God provides for them. He provides for them all along the way because he's the great provider. So again, what do we see? In the midst of their rebellion and hardening of heart, complaining, putting the Lord to the test, what does he do, destroy them? No, he again gives them another sign. If you're hungry, hey, I can handle that. You want some manna? How about some meat? I got that covered. And so God provides for them again. Let me go through the rest of these events um, more quickly because what we're gonna see is over and over, not only do we live in a world of difficulty, but please note this. The Lord intentionally brings his people to places of difficulty to test them to know what's in their heart. God wants to see, do you know that I'm the Lord? And so God is gonna continuously through the wilderness provide opportunities for Israel to evidence their faith. And the reason God can do this is he has given them enough evidence to know that he's the Lord and to live in light of this. And so they continue on. And then in chapter 16, there are clear instructions with how to handle the manna. God was gonna give them enough for the day and they were not to hoard any and hold on to it the next day. See, what was, what was hoarding? What was putting some aside for the next day? What, what was that an indication of? I don't know if the Lord's gonna come through for me again. So I'm gonna eat part of this and then I'm gonna stick a little way over here just in case there's no manna out there in the morning. The Lord said, no, I will provide for you every day. You can trust me. You've seen the signs. You can believe me. Don't put me to the test. But there are groups of people. They don't know what to do with this God. And so they gather the manna. They eat just a little bit and then they put some over in the corner. And what does God do? Does he destroy them? No, he sends them another sign. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses and some of them left part of it until morning and it bred worms and became foul. And so God says, hey, don't mess with me. If you're gonna hoard that in a corner, I'll destroy it because your faith is in me, not in that manna you got in a corner. You trust me daily for your provision. I'm gonna take care of you. You can trust me. You can believe in me. You've seen the signs. You've seen me show up. Don't put me to the test. I'll destroy what you keep for yourself. And then we've got the whole Sabbath as well. Another regulation was on Saturday, the day before the Sabbath on Friday, that the Lord would provide enough manna for them to last the Sabbath as well. And they were not to go out and collect. The Sabbath was a day of rest. But again, the people failed to trust. And instead of trusting that the Lord had provided and that he would continue to provide the next day and rest and do according to the law, people run out there and they begin to gather on that day as well. They gather on the Sabbath. And so on verse 27, what does the Lord do? Well, he gives them another sign. At least I think we can call this a sign. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out together but they found none. This manna that had been on the ground every single day, seventh day, none. Why? Because God is the provider. He puts manna on the ground or he doesn't. You see, God is reinforcing repeatedly for them these signs so that they will believe. And you, what he wants is for Israel to come to a place they know that he's the Lord and it impacts the way they live their daily life. And if God says, I will provide for you daily, don't hoard it, don't hide it in the corner. You eat what you collect, tomorrow there'll be more. What he wants people to do is fall down before him and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We can trust him. Today's provision and tomorrow's will be there as well. Belief 
is what he wants. Well, we continue on in chapter 17. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Shin, according to the command of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. What does it mean to know that he's the Lord? They camp and there's no water. What does it mean? It means ultimately to say, it's better to have God in the wilderness and die of thirst than be back in Egypt. We've got the Lord. Lord, we don't have water and we're trusting ourselves to you. That's what it would mean to know that he's the Lord. In the midst of the difficulty of life, it doesn't make sense. It's dark. We can't see the end. There's an obstacle. It seems out of control. I feel vulnerable. I feel thirsty. I've got God and I can trust him. And what does Israel do though? There's no water. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, notice Egypt again, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Do you see the forbearing mercy of God in this? Because what does God do one more time? He gives them a sign. He says, Moses, go to this rock, strike it with the rod by which you parted the waters of the Red Sea. And when he did, water came out. Another sign. He's great. There's none other. There's no one beside him. We can trust him. We can believe in him. But it doesn't happen. We continue to see problem. Moses is going up and down the mountain, bringing the law. In chapter 32, the people become impatient. And this is the chapter where we find the golden calf and the people are concerned about where is this guy? Verse one, now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they begin to reject God. And what was the 10 commandments? Thou shalt not have any graven images. No other gods before me. It was very clear to be in relationship with God. You did not profane his name. You always gave him all the glory due his name. You never took anything away from him. All glory was due to his name. And they say, let's make another God that we can worship this God and follow this God, one who can go before us. And so they take all their gold and they fashion this image. And again, what does God do? Well, this time the sign is death. God breaks out on the people and some of them die. That's another sign. Don't mess with God. He's a holy God. Don't mess with him. And then we finally, that's, that's all we find in the book of Exodus. And then it takes us over to the book of Numbers and chapter 11. And the people become like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. It doesn't tell us exactly what this complaining is, but they do. And then later on, chapter 11, verses four through 34, again, we see people complaining and the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? And so they cry out 
Again, they're complaining. Now notice the reference to Egypt. We, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at except this manna. And so they begin to complain to God. They aren't grateful for God's provision. And so they begin to cry out to him. They begin to look for even more. And we find that God again, in the midst of all this, gives them another sign and he provides for them. But notice what he says in verse 23. You can feel the Lord coming to the end. He says, the Lord says to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. He says, I'll give you meat. Moses says, how are you gonna feed this many people? And the Lord says, you think I'm limited? You think anything's too difficult for me? Moses, don't you get it? I parted waters of the Red Sea. You've seen water come from a rock. Manna's on the ground. I bring quail so you can have meat. Moses, don't you get it? Don't you know who I am? I'm the Lord. There's nothing too difficult for me. But so that you can know, Moses, I'm gonna come alongside of you one more time, Moses. I want you to see me in all my glory. I want you to see these signs. I want you to believe. I don't want you to put me to the test. And God does it one more time. He provides for them in an amazing way. And so the people have this quail again. And so they spend all day long and they are eating of this quail and they enjoy the quail that God provides for them. Another sign, another sign. And then finally, we get to chapter 14. After all these signs, God's showing them, hey, I can do anything. You hungry? I can provide that. You need some drink? Hey, I can take care of that. You feel trapped? Mountains, wilderness, Red Sea, Pharaoh come? No problem. I'm just gonna part the waters of Red Sea. You'll walk through on dry ground. My presence is gonna go with you. I'm gonna provide for you. You can trust me. And finally, we get to chapter 14. And they're about to take the land. And the Lord says, promise to Abram. And now I'm gonna take you into that land. And you can enjoy this land. The spies go in. They say, no, I can't do it. You see, what would it mean for them to know that he's the Lord? It would mean for them to look at the giants in the land and say, you know what, we can't do this, but God can. Nothing's too difficult for him. He can bring water from a rock. He can part the waters of the Red Sea. I trust him. So if he says go, I'm going. What does it mean to know that he's the Lord? It means that we will humble ourselves. It means that we will uh, obey. It means that we will worship and so now they're faced with this other difficulty and they're gonna move right through it. But the people, again, do not regard the Lord. They disobey. They do not take the land and eventually the Lord's gonna show them another sign. Again, please see this in his mercy. They don't go into the land. The Lord says, now you will not go into the land. You're gonna perish in the wilderness. I'm gonna raise up another generation taking the land. But soon after that, we see in chapter 14, Verses 39 and following that Israel says, no, 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 wait a second. Ah, we've heard what the Lord said, but we repented. We're good. And there's the land. Let's go take it. Let's do it. And they take the land without the presence of the Lord and they are defeated and lives are lost on that day. Again, that's another sign. God says, hey, don't you mess with me. If I say you aren't going in the land, don't you go in the land. The only way you're gonna have victory is because of me. Those giants don't fear them. You fear me. Don't fear the giants, you fear me. And they failed to do that. And God in his mercy and his grace gives another sign to show his power and to show his authority, to show his sovereignty. And that's why when we get to verse 
21, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who've seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times that have not listened to my voice, they aren't gonna enter the land. You see, signs were to produce belief, which was the lead to worship. Knowing that he's the Lord, humbling ourselves before him, obeying whatever he says and worshiping him. The absence of self-preoccupation. But what about my thirst? No, it's about the Lord. It's about the Lord. What about my difficulty that I'm up against? No, no, no. It's the Lord knowing who he is. You entrust all that to him. Life is full of difficulty. What are we going to do? Demand satisfaction? That's going to be idolatry. It leads to futility and emptiness. Or are we going to find ourselves worshiping and trusting ourselves to a faithful creator and doing what's right, waiting eagerly on him to provide? Difficulty throughout for the nation of Israel is a test. It exposes their vulnerability. It heightens their thirst so that they can find themselves at their end with no hope but to trust in someone outside of themselves, someone more powerful, some, someone all sovereign and in control. God uses difficulty to draw people to himself. And he does it repeatedly for the nation of Israel because he wants them to know that he's the Lord. They want, he wants them to know that they put their trust in him, not their circumstances, but in him, not in what they can do, but in him. And we've got to learn that in our own lives as well. We looked at 10 incidences in the nation of Israel. Now, think about your life for a second. What difficulty do you find yourself up against? You're, you've seen the signs of the Lord. You've seen what God has done. If nothing else, you've seen the biblical testimony. God can part waters of the Red Sea. That's not a fairy tale. That's not something that happened long ago and God's now gone. God is in the business of blessing people and coming alongside of them and working out his purposes in this world. Now, what is your difficulty? What are you up against? You've got to answer the question, what does it mean for you to grumble like the Israelites, which, which, which grieves the heart of God versus what it means for you to know that he's the Lord and to wait on him and to rest in him. You see, this isn't just a story about Israel. This is a story about us too. And God wants us to understand by learning from the Israelites what we need to know as true about him. His primary concern is that Israel knows who he is and live in light of that. And that's his primary concern for us as well. And we see that in the story. Unfortunately, this first generation perishes in the wilderness, but God raises up a next generation and they're gonna take the land. And we've got one person that still needs to die after that whole second generation passes away in the wilderness. We've got the leader, Moses. He's gonna turn leadership over to Joshua, but he's gonna have to die first. But before he dies, he invites the people to consider all that God has done. And he gives three sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. Look over in the book of Deuteronomy. Three sermons that Moses provides. Now remember, the book of Deuteronomy does not advance the story for us. And so it's not a storyline book. The story of Numbers is gonna end and Joshua's gonna pick it up. So we're on the plains of Moab. We're waiting for Moses to die and he's gonna share these sermons. And all of them begin with the word here. Look at chapter one in verse one. 
where, or with this phrase, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. And so these are the words, these are from Moses. And so in this particular sermon, what we have here is historical reflection. Moses looks back and says to this generation, they weren't a part of all this that took place in the Exodus leading up to this day. And he says, I want you to remember something. I want you to see all the ways, why? Signs are to produce belief. And I want you to know who God is. I want you to know that he is the Lord. And then in chapter five, in verse one, we see the second sermon. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, listen up. And he gives a call to the second generation here to step up and be God's people. And he reminds them of all the commandments. He reminds them of the blessings of the covenant and the curses of the covenant. And he calls them to obedience. He says, I'm calling you to be God's people. I want you to walk in obedience. And then the third sermon is found in chapter 29 in verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, and then he has a final sermon for them. And in this particular sermon, what happens is we have a covenant renewal. Everything that happened at Mount Sinai with that first generation, and they said, yes, everything you said we will do. And God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. The covenant is renewed with this second generation. And they too say, we will do. And, and Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people say, yes, yes. And they commit themselves again to the covenant renewal and blessing. And now they're ready to take the land. But ultimately, in this large book, when we look at the details, there's again powerful theology that I just want us to take a moment to look at. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we see the repetition of two phrases that draws our attention to something very important. And the phrase is, remember and do not forget remember and do not forget. And repeatedly, Moses is saying to this generation, you remember, I want to draw to your attention. Don't you forget. I want to draw to your attention. You can't, can't forget this. And see, this is so important for us to, to grasp the importance of watching the ways in which God has worked and remembering them. That's one of the importance of the scriptures is it's a reminder of all the ways that God has worked and we're to meditate on these things. Why? Because these signs and who God is has produced belief so that when we look back, we recognize who God is, his power, his authority, his sovereignty, his goodness. He is to be trusted so that when we look forward, we can walk into darkness, we can walk in the difficulty, we can walk into uncertainty with absolute faith, absolute confidence that he's the Lord. And he's to be trusted. You see, and Moses is saying, I want to remind you because you're about to take the land. And remember those giants that the first generation saw? They're still there. There's going to be difficulty that lies ahead for you. You still got lessons to learn. So let me build some good theology in your life so that you can live it. I want you to remember who he is. Don't forget so that you can walk into the future and you can take this with you. It's just a powerful point that Moses wants to make. And I want us to look at one passage in Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8 really focuses on both of these, remember and do not forget. Now look at verse two, it says, you shall remember 
all the way which the Lord has led you. And then in verse 10, or in verse 11, it says, beware lest you forget. And so we've got these two points that Moses is making here. He wants them to remember. And the remembering is a looking back. It's an exhortation to look back. And the do not forget is an exhortation to look forward and think about what lies ahead for them. And so Moses makes it very clear. I want you to look back. I want you to remember these things that are going on. All the ways that the Lord led you in the wilderness. Now notice in verse two, these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So when Israel encountered difficulty, God was trying to teach them something about themselves and about him. And they would encounter this difficulty and they'd shrink back and they would lack faith. And God would remind them, I am worthy of belief. I am worthy of following. I am worthy of trusting. I'll show you once again because in his mercy, he's gentle with the nation of Israel and continues to work with them. But there's this exhortation to remember the way that God worked for them in the wilderness these 40 years. He humbled them. He let them be hungry and fed them with manna. He continues to, to work through all this understanding that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not about going back to Egypt with pots of meat. It's about having God. That's what God's trying to teach him, he says in verse three. Your clothing didn't wear out. Your foot didn't swell. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, keep the commandments, fear him. For, now here's the forward look, God is bringing you to a land and it's got all these wonderful advantages. A land, verse nine, where you will eat food without scarcity. The provision is there. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you will bless the Lord. And so God has acted on your behalf He's going to act on your behalf. Don't you forget that. He's the same. He's the God who's going to continue to provide for you. He's a God who seeks to bless. Just walk with him. Be a people of faith. And then don't forget. In verse 10, he wants to continue to point the way for them as they think about what lies ahead. They are not to forget who the Lord is or what he has done. So when they get into this land and they've eaten, and are satisfied, they've built houses and they lived in them and their herds and their flocks multiply and their silver and gold multiplies, everything they have multiplies because that's what God does. He pours out blessing for them. Then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you from Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the wilderness, who brought you water from a rock. In the wilderness, he fed you manna that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power, the strength of my hand made this wealth. No, 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 no. You remember the Lord is your God. It is he who's given you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant. God is the one who does all of this. God is the one who's at work. And Moses wants them to remember this. See, remembering is so important for us. Think about in the New Testament. The Lord gives us the Lord's Supper. And we've got these little pieces of bread and these drinks that we drink, symbols. But what's the ultimate focus? Is it about the bread we eat or the drink that we drink? No, it's about remembering his body for us, his blood 
for us and we remember, we set our mind on that. And Moses says, set your mind on these things because in the future you're gonna encounter difficulty and obstacles and you don't wanna forget it. You wanna remember all of this stuff. God is for you, not against you. God is sovereign, he's in control. He can change everything in a moment, but it's not about you. It's about him and his purposes and what he's working out in this world. And he wants you to make it your primary concern to know who he is and to live in light of that. Even when it's dark, even when it's dreary, even when it's difficult, trust him. Wait eagerly for him. And so Israel's being called to this. So Moses gives this warning. Remember, don't forget. We find something very similar in the book of Mark. In chapter 8, and I just want to look at that briefly. In Mark 8, verses 14 through 21, what's gone on during this time is the Lord has fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. And the disciples watch all this stuff. They give it to the Lord. He breaks it, and 5,000 are fed. And there's basketfuls left over. And then there's 4,000. And God feeds them all again with just a few loaves and a few fishes. And the disciples watch him break the bread, and they gather up basketfuls left over. And then... In Mark 8, 14, they get into the boat with the Lord and they're going across the lake and they, oh no, we forgot bread. And they didn't have more than one loaf. And the Lord's teaching, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Instead of interacting with him, they begin to discuss amongst themselves, they don't have bread. What are we gonna eat? Here's Jesus waxing eloquent, teaching the authoritative word of God. And they're sitting in the boat saying, well, we don't have bread. What are we gonna do? And Jesus is aware of this and he says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you pick up? They said 12. And when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You see, what is Jesus saying to them? He's saying, don't you know who I am? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread when you've got me in the boat with you? You've got me. I can feed 5,000 with a few loaves and just a few fish or 4,000. It doesn't matter. Bring me a million. Give me nothing. I can take rocks and turn it into bread. I can create bread out of nothing. Don't you know who I am? And so when we bring all of this into our life, there's a very powerful point it's making. God wants to make it clear that he is the Lord. And it doesn't matter what's going on in our life. We can look to him. We can trust him because he's good, because he's gracious, because he gives to his own. But there may be a journey that you have to go on. Why? Because God wants you to know what's in your heart. And as Deuteronomy 8 says, it's for your good in the end. That's why James breaks out in chapter 1, verse 2, and says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? God's doing something in you. He's perfecting you. That's why Job could come to the end of his life and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be his name. And God is calling us to that as well. We are to remember. So when we get to the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, Israel still has a lot to learn. They aren't quite getting it. God is showing up in all his glory. He's giving them signs to produce belief, to produce worship, 
But every time God brings a little difficulty in their life, they're struggling. And God wants us to learn from that. That's the theology. He brings us into the story so that we can see our own lives. And we can learn and we can begin to trust him. Now we can look at the difficulty in our life and we can hopefully begin to approach it differently. Lord, help me in my unbelief. But he is trustworthy. We can give our lives to him, the circumstances to him, the difficulty to him, knowing that he is good. Now, we want to continue the story. There's more that's going to happen in Joshua. There's more content. They're going to take the land, divide the land. But there's also more theology. It's powerful theology. It's for us so that we can enter into a deeper relationship with the living God. And we'll be looking at that next.